If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet PlushCare, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Now, from the most powerful city in the world, a new generation of conservative talk. Fair, fresh, fun. It's the Guy Benson Show with Guy Benson. It is Monday, June 27, 2022, a brand new, fresh broadcast week for you. Here on the Guy Benson Show, I am your host, Guy Benson, political editor at townhall.com and a Fox News contributor. I'll be on special report tonight, Brett Bayer's panel on Fox News Channel, coming up late in the 6 p.m. hour Eastern time. So you can tune in for that or set your DVRs. I'd be grateful. Here at the radio show, our website is Guy Benson Show. We air live 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern Time every weekday. You can listen as we air. Many ways to do that. We recommend it. If not, free podcast on demand every day, no charge. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcasts.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also follow us on social media at GuyBensonShow, Twitter and Instagram. The lineup today is relatively short. We are lighter on the guests today for a reason that I'll explain here in a moment. But here are the guests. Jessica Tarloff will join us later on this hour. And then Howie Kurtz in our final hour. So co-host of The Five and then host of Media Buzz. Those are our guests today. I wanted to have some breathing room to get into substance on the Supreme Court and some of the decisions that have come down even today, but over the last four or five days, the last few sessions, or at least decision days announced by the court, obviously some big issues. Guns, abortion, religious liberty, and the backlash, the response in popular culture, online, in the media, it has just been, I would say breathtaking, not really surprising. We knew there was going to be a big reaction no matter what happened for example, in the abortion case. But I think it's worth listening to some of the points being made. There's some really terrible, ignorant points being made that need to be corrected. There are other points that I think are at least closer to thoughtful discourse. And I would like to unpack some of them and respond to some of them on a host of different issues. So I'm going to take my time a little bit today and break some of that down. Also, just one thing to promote and preview for you. At the very end of the show, I have to tell you about my Saturday night, which was spent at a Backstreet Boys concert and going backstage afterwards and, like, chatting at length with one of the band members. Just wild. Just a wild experience. We'll get into those details in the segment we call The Home Stretch at the very end of the show today, tail end of the 5 p.m. Eastern hour. So before we get to the Dobbs decision on reversing Roe versus Wade or any of that, there is new Supreme Court, uh, Supreme Court news as of this morning. 
because it was another batch of cases that people were waiting for. And one of the big ones that we had discussed a little bit last week with some of our guests, including Shannon Bream, was a case involving a former high school football coach in Washington who had lost his job as the football coach at this public high school over his insistence that he continue a tradition that he had started, which was after the game was over, he would go to midfield and he would say a quiet prayer. That was his decision, and some players noticed it and asked to join. He said this is 100% voluntary. If anyone wants to, it's a free country. You're welcome to. This is not required at all. Go do your thing. Talk to your families, whatever it's going to be. But he would go and say a brief, quiet prayer at the 50-yard line after the game, and there were lawsuits brought, and the school that he worked for eventually said in an ultimatum, you need to stop the praying in public. You can't have people watching you pray or surrounding you. It can't happen because that's a state endorsement of religion. It's unconstitutional. So either you stop the praying or you cannot be our football coach anymore. And he said, well, I'm not going to stop praying. So he was not the football coach anymore. This is the so-called Coach Kennedy case. So that ruling was handed down by the high court this morning. And the good news is Coach Kennedy won. Justice Neil Gorsuch writing for a 6-3 to three majority, among other things, saying, quote, respect for religious expressions is indispensable to life in a free and diverse republic. Whether those expressions take place in a sanctuary or on a field, and whether they manifest through the spoken word or a bowed head, end quote. That is part of what Justice Gorsuch wrote. Now, he went on at great length, and I read much of the opinion earlier, and I want to read some of it to you here, to explain what was at stake and what the court decided. Here is the majority opinion. Quoting now, Joseph Kennedy lost his job as a high school football coach because he knelt at midfield after games to offer a quiet prayer of thanks. Mr. Kennedy prayed during a period when school employees were free to speak with a friend, call for a reservation at a restaurant, check email, or attend other personal matters. He offered his prayers quietly while his students were otherwise occupied. Still, the school district disciplined him anyway. It did so because it thought anything less could be a or could lead a reasonable observer to conclude, mistakenly, that it endorsed Mr. Kennedy's religious beliefs. That reasoning was misguided. Both the free exercise and free speech clauses of the First Amendment protect expressions like Mr. Kennedy's. Nor does a proper understanding of the Amendment's Establishment Clause require the government to single out private religious speech for special disfavor. The Constitution and the best of our traditions counsel mutual respect and tolerance, not censorship and suppression, for religious and non-religious views alike. The court also said, quote, the free exercise and free speech clauses of the First Amendment protect an individual engaging in a personal religious observance from government reprisal. The Constitution neither mandates nor permits the government to suppress such religious expression. Now, 
I said the good news was that Coach Kennedy won, and he won 6-3. to three. To me, the bad, distressing news, which is maybe a dark lining on a silver cloud, but still, three justices, the three liberal justices appointed by Democratic presidents, dissented. There are some constitutional cases that I think are close calls. I understand when you have closely divided opinions, 6-3, 5-4, There are some really that aren't. And the Roberts Court overall has been good on the First Amendment, on religious liberty and beyond. They've been strong. And there have been a few cases, like the ministerial exception case involving religious schools and their freedom to act within their beliefs. That case, a number of years ago, was a 9-0 decision in the Roberts Court. But this one was 6-3. It was the six conservatives against the three liberals. And Justice Sotomayor, for example, in dissent, was talking about this being a a central act at the center of a football game. It's actually after the game. (laughs) The center of a football game is the game. And effectively, they were arguing that this was not constitutional because this was a state employee working for the government because he was a public high school football teacher. Now, I am not a lawyer. I'm not a constitutional scholar. I am a reasonably well-informed citizen and a legal layperson. And I went back to the actual Constitution and read the text of the First Amendment, which is very simple. This is the First Amendment. Ready? Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. And then it goes on on the freedom of speech and the press and the freedom to peaceably assemble. That's the First Amendment. But within the First Amendment, the very first one in the Constitution, the first in line within the First Amendment was religious liberty. I don't think that's an accident. So you have the Establishment Clause that the government, Congress, shall make no law respecting the establishment of religion. That's the Establishment Clause. Or prohibiting the free exercise thereof, the Free Exercise Clause. Now, and we talked about this last week with the Maine case on school vouchers, where the state of Maine said in areas, far-flung areas of the state, remote areas where the communities didn't have public schools, we're going to give you taxpayer-funded vouchers to parents to send those kids in those areas to the private school of their choice, but you can't send them to a religious school because of this notion of the separation of church and state, a phrase, by the way, that does not appear in the Constitution. And the justices on the same split, six to three, said, no, that is discriminatory. That is discriminating against religious institutions where the state said, we're setting up a voucher system, send your kids to private schools, but there was a carve out. You may not. You are disqualified from using this money to take your kid to the private school of your choice if that school is associated with a religion. And the justices said no. Because allowing parents under this circumstance with these vouchers to send their own children to a school that they want to send their kid to that happens to align with their religious beliefs or maybe not even they just want to go to that school that does not constitute the establishment of a religion of an official government religion does any serious person actually believe that really by the way i'd remind you it says congress shall make no law at the time of the constitution its adoption 
multiple individual states actually did have state religions. And that was not thrown out at the time. That was not prescribed. That was not invalidated when the First Amendment was adopted. Like, that seems relevant to me. I'm not saying that we should have official state religions today. I'm just saying if we're looking at original intent and what the meaning of these words is and was, that seems like an important fact. Similarly, in this case, a high school football coach kneeling and doing a brief, quiet prayer after the game on the field that was not required. People didn't have to look. They didn't have to participate. It was completely voluntary. And a school district saying, we're not going to fire you from the coaching job because of it. That, what, constitutes the state endorsing and establishing a religion? No. No. I understand it's, it's nuanced, and I'm probably simplifying things a little bit, but if you're looking at those two clauses in the First Amendment, Establishment Clause, Free Exercise Clause, on the Establishment, I don't see how it's remotely reasonable to say either of these examples qualify as the United States government endorsing or establishing a national religion because of private choices by private citizens. However, on the free exercise, where the government cannot prohibit the free exercise, that seems to be the more important and the relevant test here. Is the free exercise of someone's faith faith being impinged upon by the government? And the justices, I think, very correctly decided that the state of Maine was, in fact, unconstitutionally, unlawfully discriminating against religious people, and that this school district in Washington was punishing a citizen for freely exercising his religion just because he works or worked for a public school system. So those were free exercise violations, one in Maine, one in Washington, both thrown out by the Supreme Court, Correctly. They got it right. Now, I see in Maine, they're still trying to get around it. The state's trying to say, well, these religious schools might not comply with our non-discrimination code, so that's a new way to block this. So my guess is we might see more litigation on that front. But at least for now, these 6-3 cases were decided, to me, in alignment with the plain meaning of the First Amendment. And the only thing that disturbs me, I'm not, oh, we're on our way to a theocracy. What a ridiculous, hyperbolic thing. Oh, the separation of church and state is being crushed by this court. We have freedom of religion, not from religion, in the United States of America under the Constitution. The thing that worries me, the only thing about this, is that it was only six to three in both of these cases. That you have the whole leftist block of the court, not just hostile to the Second Amendment, obviously, we'll talk more about that later, but also increasingly to the First Amendment. And these two cases aren't the only examples of that phenomenon, that lurch toward enforced government-required secularization in recent memory. A few more examples to get to when we come back. So that's that's the positive news out of the Supreme Court today, the Coach Kennedy case, a win for religious freedom 6-3. to three. But again, I think it brings into sharp focus that nothing should be taken for granted. 
and why voting and these confirmation battles and the courts are hugely important in our culture. Not just on issues like guns or abortion, but on other things as well. Even something as basic as the First Amendment. More context, more details right after this break. Just getting started. It's the Guy Benson Show. Guy Benson will be right back. Hey, folks, it's your man, Keyshawn Johnson, here to talk about Angie. Formerly known as Angie's List, your go-to home services. Marketplace for getting all your jobs done well. Now, you might be wondering, what exactly is Angie? Well, let me tell you. It's the nation's largest home services marketplace, connecting over 150 million homeowners with skilled professionals to tackle any project, big or small. As a homeowner myself, I always have things I want to work on for my house, whether it's general home renovations or fun projects like putting in a pool. With over 200,000 pros in their network, Angie makes it a breeze to research, compare, and hire pros, ensuring every job is done well. Whether you're fixing a leaky faucet or planning a full kitchen renovation, Angie's got your back. And get this, folks. Angie's pros aren't just any old contractors. They're your neighbors, often running small businesses right in your community. Plus, they've been rated and reviewed by others in your area. So you know you're getting quality service. So why stress over home projects when you can turn to Angie? From finding the best price to scheduling a pro at your convenience, Angie's got you covered every step of the way. So get started today at Angie.com. That's Angie.com or download the app today to get started on getting all your jobs done. That's Angie, your trusted ally in home services. I'm Guy Benson. We're back. My friend Mary Catherine Ham just tweeted about the Coach Kennedy case, the 50-yard line prayer, that Justice Roberts, Chief Justice Roberts, concurred, but he said that the prayer had to happen at the 30-yard line, which is pretty good. It's a pretty good line. It's a pretty good uh, joke there at the expense of the Chief Justice. But I want to get back to this point on the growing, what I see, growing hostility for the First Amendment and its protections among the leftist bloc of the court. And we talked about the two cases in this term. Go back to 2018. There was NIFLA versus Becerra out in California, which is a 5-4 decision. The correct side, the right side prevailed, in my view. The pro-First Amendment side prevailed, but only 5-4 to because the court was more closely split at that time. And the liberal justices, again, in that case, would have upheld a California law plainly unconstitutional that was going to force pro-life counseling pregnancy centers to try to give women resources not to get abortions, force those places to advertise abortion and engage in abortion referral. This was just a punitive, radical abortion law to try to tell private organizations, often with religious underpinnings, that they had to, they were compelled to engage in speech that ran counter to their core beliefs and their core mission. Supreme Court said that was unconstitutional for California to do, but four of the justices disagreed, as did four of the justices in the Hobby Lobby case, saying this private Christian family company had to provide things to their employees that was against the family's Christian beliefs. 
That was a 5-4 decision as well. And now the court has a little bit more breathing room on this stuff with the 6-3 split, thank goodness, in the cases that we ran through in the last segment. But for all the attention paid, for example, to one thing that Clarence Thomas, a single justice, wrote in a concurring opinion that no one else signed on to, there's a lot less hand-wringing about three to four liberal justices in recent memory looking to deeply undermine the First Amendment on free speech and free religious expression. To me, that deserves a lot more scrutiny. Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton Withrow. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my (laughs) name is Chad. His name is Jonathan. But you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you'll subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. It's the Guy Benson Show on this Monday. Thank you very much for tuning in. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. Our podcast is free for all of you at your fingertips, on demand, no charge every day. GuyBensonShow.com. With us now is Jessica Tarloff, Fox News contributor, co-host of The Five, head of research at Bustle. She has many other important roles here at the show. She's also a friend and colleague. Jessica, welcome back. Good to have you. Thank you so much. I would like to talk about the Supreme Court decisions over the last couple of days dating back to last week. I know that we, I'm sure, agree on all of them, so maybe it's not worth even getting into because yeah, uh, I assume. Just go. Yeah. <laughs> let's just move on up. to the next. Okay, yeah. uh, let's, let's start with the guns case uh, coming out of New York. Uh, six to three decision there on the Second Amendment, on concealed carry. I just wonder how you viewed that decision and that case through your eyes as a left-leaning person compared to uh, yours truly and much of the audience. Um, Well, I think actually what's kind of more useful or the way that I've been looking at all of this is that we've just entered a 6-3 world that we're going to be in for a very long time. So I did think that the decision – went too far. I don't think that essentially we're, we should have no limits on where even concealed carry can take us. I know in liberal states here in New York, Kathy Hochul has already started increasing the number of sensitive areas or what they're called when you can't even have um, a legally permitted gun with you. I was talking to Katie Pavlich, both of our colleagues here at Fox and yours as well at Town Hall about it, and she said that's why it's essentially not worthwhile to even bring your concealed carry gun into Washington, D.C., for instance, because everything is a sensitive uh, spot. But I've just been overwhelmed, I guess, by the realization that these decisions are going to continue to come down, and I don't think that there's an end in sight for 6-3 and, at most, maybe 5-4 if Robert swings, um, you know, and votes with the liberals, as he has been known to do in a few key cases. Um, and did actually with the Roe decision. Obviously, he was supportive in Dobbs and then said it went too far and wouldn't vote to overturn Roe. Um, but it's been a hugely depressing few days for me. Yeah. And look, I'm 
I obviously have very different emotions about it. I hope that you're right that we'll see this 6-3 split for a long time to come. Uh, you, you never know. I hope that's true. Um, I think that part of the reason that elections have such high consequences is because of things like this. And a lot of people worked very hard for mm-hmm. a very long time uh, to achieve these these exact outcomes. Uh, but I, if look, if I were in your shoes – and this is how many conservatives felt for decades, by the way, when the court looked very different and really put out a long, a long string of decisions, especially on social issues that went uniformly against conservatives for the most part. I, I think that if I had been a conservative back then, at least on some of those decisions, I would have felt a very similar sense of distress that you have right now. I do feel as though perhaps it's a sense that Judges have too much power in general in our system, which is why I like the idea mm-hmm. that if it's not a very explicitly stated right in the Constitution, more of that power should flow back to elected people. So it's not like huge, huge topics boil down to nine people, like nine lawyers in robes in Washington, D.C. I'm not sure hanging so much of our culture war baggage onto nine people is a terribly healthy thing for the country. Right. I, I mean, I don't disagree with you at all about that. Um, I, I, nine unelected folks who now in an increasingly partisan world um, are not what they used to be. And I, I'm not insulting their intellectuality, intelligence, et cetera. But I think that we're all both grown up enough to admit that it's just become at least to some degree polarized uh, when you would really hope that it wouldn't. And that doesn't mean there can't be you know, bipartisan friendships, a la RBG and Scalia. But it's just a, <clears throat> excuse me, it's a very, very different time. Um, and it's worrying, and I'm curious if this worries you at all. You know, Clarence Thomas obviously wrote his, his own opinion on this, but he called out other rights like gay marriage, um, contraception, et cetera, that they should all be reevaluated as well to, Do you think that that is something that is going to happen? And I know Alito said that it was not their view that that those decisions like Griswold and Oberfell were in the same realm as Roe. But what did you make of that? Yeah, so it's interesting. Brett Bayer was on the show on Friday. He asked me the exact same question, and I gave the answer on the air, and I actually really fleshed out that answer in a piece mm-hmm. today at townhall.com that published this morning. Oh. Um, so people can go read that. I would encourage you to do that. The short answer is I am not concerned. Uh, and I'm not saying that because I'm wish casting and I'm just like, oh, it'll be fine. I've really looked at the opinions written by these justices, the concurrences, uh, not just of of Thomas, who I think is sort of out on an island on this, Uh, But also Kavanaugh, I think, really got into this very explicitly. Uh, I look at other examples on the sort of on the same trail of precedent. For example, the Bostock decision that came out in 2020, which expanded LGBT rights. That was a 6-3 decision written by Gorsuch uh, with with Roberts Mm -hmm. joining. And so I think that there are some people – leaning very, very heavily into the argument that because Roe has been reevaluated and Justice Thomas said on the substantive due process stuff, maybe Obergefell and Griswold and I think a handful of others, you know, maybe maybe we ought to look at that. 
I think that's one out of nine, and I think it is unlikely that they would even get four to grant cert to reevaluate a Bergefell or Griswold. That, that is my opinion, mm-hmm. and you can read sort of some of my additional rationale behind it, but that's, that's how I yeah. come at it. Um, and I, I truly think that this court, they understand the gravity of what they've just done on Friday with Roe, and I think a number of those justices want nothing to do with these other issues, contraception, uh, same-sex marriage, because they actually write in that decision in Dobbs that abortion is different, and they explain why, I think very persuasively. And I think there is no groundswell. There is no massive decades-long movement or years-long movement, you know, every single year showing up to protest the anniversary of Obergefell, for example. Roe and abortion... I mean, it's, uh, the decision was in 2015, right? True, but true, but so you, you would argue like, okay, the, it was, the wound is fresh. You would think that there would be, if anything, you know, the, the recency bias. You'd have a lot of people showing up at the court to protest Obergefell. Um, if there was some big groundswell movement to reverse it, that movement, there, there are people who think Obergefell was wrong, but I think there's not a concerted legal push to overturn it and I think that there is not an appetite of the court to go anywhere near it, evidenced by Bostock, for example, two years ago, where you had two conservative justices joining there and then Kavanaugh getting increasingly vocal on this issue uh, in the context of Dobbs. So I, I sort of have tried to come at this issue a few different ways in response to your question, Jesse. Um, so I, I hope that at least gives you a little bit of a window uh, of insight into my thinking. Yeah, and I'll absolutely read your piece. And I'm sorry that I did not know it was up already. Um, No, no, it's fine. I know, I know that you you listen. You listen to the podcast every day, start to finish. You read almost everything yeah. that I write, but you, you miss things from time to time, and I get it. Cleo, your daughter, is, is, keeps you busy, so for, it's forgivable this time. It's forgivable this time. All right. I, just, I won't cash in that card again. It's just you and me, baby, for the rest of the time. <laughs> uh-huh. So anyway, that's, that's, that's my point on the uh, are we worried about a whole – suite of rights uh, being revisited or thrown out. Um, I am not for the reasons that I lay out. Then today we had the case, Jesse, on the coach praying after football games out in Washington. And he was told by the school district he had to stop his personal prayers at the 50-yard line after games because that was an endorsement of religion by the state. That was years of litigation finally got up to the Supreme Court, and today the decision, and we talked about it at the top of the show, 6-3 to in favor of the coach and the free exercise clause of the First Amendment. I do wonder how you think about that, because I understand on guns and abortion, it might be difficult to get Jessica Tarloff and Guy Benson to agree on either of those things. On the issue of the the prayer question, I... I don't know. I'm hopeful maybe that we might be closer on that, but maybe not, because it was the same split, six to three. What are your general impressions of that case? Um, Well, we're probably closer together because, frankly, it's not an issue that animates me in the same way that, you know, a woman's right to control her own body does. Um, But – 
and I admit that I wasn't, I, you know, I followed the case loosely. I, I know the broad strokes of it, certainly. Um, and it seemed to me that this was something that if the coach had remained alone and with just a few kids, that I would have felt it was constitutional, but that once it shifted to being dozens of kids, and I've seen some pictures where it looks like there are 30 people assembled around him, that I did not feel that way anymore and ultimately sided with the liberal dissenting opinion on this front. I thought that he could have not done it on the 50-yard line. I think that the ACS student who brought the case was very brave. Um, we all know what sports are like, organized sports, um, especially something like football. And I don't know, it was a very impactful argument that students who didn't participate could be treated differently, you know, from anywhere from being lifeless by the coach to losing playing time, et cetera, and that it was organized religion. Um, and then, you know, we have a separation for a reason. So that, those were my views on it. Yeah. And I mean, I, Disagree with almost all of that um, for various reasons, a lot of which I touched on in, in, in the opening segment. Um, and to me, to to describe what you just said as this voluntary prayer that kids chose to join, and a lot of them didn't, many of them did, many of them did not, to say that establishes a religion in a way that's unconstitutional, I just, I just don't believe that. And I think that the retribution against a person of faith, freely exercising that faith, in a way that does not establish a state religion, uh, that is discriminatory and that runs afoul of the First Amendment. And it, to me, it, it was fairly clear cut, uh, which is why I'm kind of disturbed that it was only six to three. But this maybe goes back to your point that you made a few moments ago about how a lot of things do seem extremely polarized. Uh, and then, I mean, here's the other, here's the counterpoint to that. On some of the Issues where there are clear ideological fault lines, there are splits, five to four, now six to three. But on a lot of other extremely consequential cases on a bunch of different issues, you do get strange bedfellows and unusual majorities. I've seen some of the court watchers this term saying, wow, here's a Kagan, if I'm recalling correctly, here's a Kagan majority with Thomas and Barrett joining with the two liberals and then, you know, all the other conservatives are, are against and, you know, that's a 5-4 decision with a strange coalition. There have been a few of those. Justice Gorsuch jumping over, I think, on a Native American-related issue that raised some eyebrows. It's not just like, you know, these people have blue hats and these people have red hats and you can just count on every case being perfectly split down the middle. I think that's a vast oversimplification. I don't think that's how the court works. But on some of these really entrenched, difficult cultural problems, it seems like there aren't a ton of surprises these days on those rulings. Yeah, I agree with you. Um, and it feels like everything, and this just might be that I'm, you know, three days post-row, et cetera, but everything feels very heavy, um, you know, with, the protests going on outside of the justices' houses um, with the, you know, the amount of news about the implications of the Roe decision in various states. I mean, frankly, the, the one word I would use to describe what the ruling actually did is chaos. 
right? Like no one is actually clear on what the rules are going to be anywhere and, you know, where you can send medicine if you can or not and et cetera. Um, but it, I feel a real national sense of heaviness and that's disconcerting to me. And I don't know how many crossovers we're going to have, at least on very high profile cases. You know, I know to every, you know, to someone, every case matters, but the ones that we can all agree really have huge implications um, for the way that our country operates. I, yeah. I don't see much of that. I, I would say, you know, your, your word was chaos. Uh, my word would probably be democracy in, in that. That would be my response on that point. On the other point about the heaviness, I agree. Uh, and I, I have felt that way, honestly, since 2016. I just feel like it has been a very heavy political, ideological time for the last six years. That's how I felt, six-plus years at this point, um, with some big flare-ups along the way, this being one of them, but it's not a unique feeling, and it can be disconcerting. And I don't know if there's a a path out of that at some point, uh, but I think having good conversations with people who you disagree with uh, may be part of that micro-solution um, hopefully replicated many times across the country and what we try to do here, even when we disagree, like we did on basically everything here today, uh, just not in a rancorous way. Jessica Tarloff, I appreciate it. Thanks so much, Guy. I appreciate it, too. We will step aside. We'll come right back on The Guy Benson Show. The Guy Benson Show. More next. It's The Guy Benson Show. We are back. Still to come later in the program, Howie Kurtz will be here with uh, his take and analysis on the media's coverage of everything we were just discussing with Jessica Tarloff in the last segment. It has been, I would say, expectedly horrendous in most cases. And it's interesting, we're looking at some of the polling out there now. CBS News has a new poll with Joe Biden presidential approval at a new low, 41 percent, just terrible marks on the economy and on inflation. He is still in real trouble. We've also seen an Associated Press story about how Republicans have gained more than one million voters since 2020 in a warning toward Democrats. Democrats, I think, are watching what's happening. They're worried. On the flip side, they're making hay over the Dobbs decision and Roe. NPR poll has that decision unpopular. I'm not surprised, based on the way that it's so often framed. If only 40% of the public supporting the Dobbs decision, I'm one of them. I think a lot of people misunderstand it and the implications. And Democrats have now jumped up into a lead on the generic ballot in that poll. I think that is going to subside as we move on to the next thing and maybe people realize that the end of the world hasn't arrived the way it's been presented to them Uh, but we'll see this will be a weeks-long process i think of processing another hour coming up a lot to get to please stay tuned to the guy benson show From the most powerful city in the world, unconventional talk from a fresh, unconventional conservative, Guy Benson Show. 
Our middle hour is here on the Guy Benson Show. We are 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern Time every weekday, so the 4 o'clock hour, sandwiched between the 3 and 5 p.m. hours. As we get started here, thank you very much for tuning into the Guy Benson Show. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. Podcast is free. It is on demand every day. GuyBensonShow.com. And a Fox News alert. The Dow ends the day down 62 points, closing out at 31,000. 440 thereabouts, and so roughly a flat day on Wall Street, but slightly in the red. Programming note, I'll be on special report tonight. Brett Baer and the panel, Fox News Channel, 6 p.m. hour toward the end of that hour. So I hope you'll tune in or record that show this evening. I've got a lot to get to this hour because many things have been said and posted and shared and amplified and shouted and screamed in recent days. And we're sort of keeping tabs on a lot of it and trying to figure out where to use our time like whack-a-mole to respond to various arguments or points. And in some cases, I think it would be charitable to describe some of these things as arguments or points, but they're being said. So I think uh, at least occasionally – It's incumbent on us to join the fray. If there's going to be discourse, we want to be part of it. And one thing that I want to bring up, talking about the Supreme Court and talking about some of the things that are being said and floated right now, I noticed that Elizabeth Warren and others are back on the court packing train. Others are saying that Supreme Court justices have perjured themselves in their confirmation hearings, and so maybe they should be impeached or face consequences. I will unpack some of that later on in the hour. I saw that Speaker Pelosi minutes ago put out a statement, put out a dear colleague's letter to her fellow Democrats in the House, laying out some of the things that they are going to try to do to blunt the impact of the overturning of Roe versus Wade. And one of the things that she urges in this letter is for the Senate, the upper chamber, to nuke the filibuster so that they can pass what she calls a codification, quote-unquote, of Roe versus Wade, which is this bill that they've already passed out of the House that's already failed in the Senate, but almost every Democrat signed on to in both houses. I believe there were a total... Of two Democrats in all of Congress, one in each chamber, who did not go along with this truly extreme abortion bill that the Democrats have. Part of the reason why I think ultimately Democrats are not going to maximize their potential backlash advantage on the issue of abortion in the wake of the Dobbs decision is because their position is so unbelievably extreme and radical. I know the media won't talk about it. They won't cover it. But if this is going to become a debate in races, you can have Republican candidates saying, well, now that this decision has left the question of abortion up to lawmakers, here's my position. You could get one, for example, like Governor Youngkin in Virginia, 15-week ban, which is actually more permissive still than most of Europe, with exceptions for rape and incest in the life of the mother. And a lot of voters hear that position and they say, oh, well, Yes, that, that's reasonable. might not go far enough if you're pro-life. You might not necessarily love it if you're pro-choice, but it's, that's, that's at least sort of a sensible, sane thing. 
And then it's like, okay, well, what's your, what's your position, Democrat? And the Democrats' position that they've virtually all voted for now, 98% of them in Congress, is nine-month abortion on demand without restriction for any reason up until the moment of birth, paid for by tax dollars. We know that total bans on abortion nationally are unpopular, and you'll see something close to that in a number of states. But we also know on the other side of the ledger that, again, the journalists rarely cover or discuss because they happen to be radicals on this. The Democratic position, the mainstream Democratic position that Pelosi's saying they should nuke the filibuster to pass, even though they don't even have 50 votes in the Senate, minor flaw in her big plan that she just released. But she's like, let's blow up an institution. These are the norms and institutions, people. By the way, I'll just say this as I say over and over again. I feel like a broken record sometimes. On January 6th and these other things, they are the adults in the room, norms and institutions. Oh, they're defending our norms and our institutions against Donald Trump and his predations and all of that. And sometimes they were right in their criticisms. And I've said that when they are. But then the moment things go against them, whether it's Trump's election or Supreme Court decision, you name it. Pack the court, blow up the filibuster, reform the Senate, get rid of the electoral college. The norms and institutions that they pretend to revere, they have no problem just throwing a hand grenade. Just roll in the hand grenade, pull the pin, there we go, buy institutions. We need it our way now. Incidentally, if they were to blow up the filibuster in the Senate, Democrats will likely not have full control of Congress much longer. You can envision a scenario very plausibly in the coming couple of years where the Republicans could use a filibuster-free Senate to pass a bunch of stuff. And the Democrats could get burned as they were on judges, by the way, since we're talking about the Supreme Court. They did this. Now we have the outcome. They're like, you know, our solution is let's blow up some more institutions, and surely that will not explode in our faces down the line do they think about this stuff ever now they're very angry got to do the things right now and so all right blow up the filibuster even though they don't have the votes the white house says they're still against it let's do that to pass this truly ghastly abortion bill that is supported based on polling by like 17 percent of the public that's their position that they've decided that they are going to stick with while some of their allies that they won't say a word about pelosi won't say one word about it are out there firebombing crisis pregnancy centers that's the foot they're putting forward here which seems to be counterproductive and perhaps something that will hurt them just a thought i'm guy benson we are back thanks for listening on this monday And we are trying to disentangle all of the hysteria, misinformation, lies, and ignorance that have been playing out over the last few days. Over the Dobbs decision and abortion and wider implications, it has been not a faucet but a fire hose of insanity. I don't begrudge anyone who disagrees with me the concern that they might feel about 
the overturning of Roe versus Wade and what the future of abortion looks like in this country. I think that in many cases, things have gotten overheated and people don't actually understand what has and has not happened. I think that is by design because there have been people misinforming them deliberately for years about Roe versus Wade, about the status of legalized abortion in the United States, about what Roe versus Wade falling actually means versus what people think it means. So we can have a difference on where the line should be drawn, what the law should look like state to state or even nationally. I respect those differences. There are certain positions in this realm that I find more difficult to respect, but the typical dichotomy and divergences between pro-life people and pro-choice people, I understand it. And I have many people in my life on both sides of that divide. What I really can't handle is the high decibel shouting and screaming and hair on fire response that is not even rooted in reality or is totally unresponsive to what the justices have concluded in the case. And I think one example, and I'm going to walk through a few of these over the next couple of segments, but one example that comes to mind about the bad faith that then fuels a lot of panic among people who don't know better derives from a tweet that was sent by Senator John Cornyn, Republican of Texas. Cornyn was a Texas Supreme Court justice earlier in his career. He is someone who understands the Constitution very well. He sits on the Judiciary Committee in the United States Senate. So last week, Barack Obama, our former president, tweeted his opposition to the Dobbs decision. And among Obama's concerns in his tweet was that, quote, the Supreme Court reversed nearly 50 years of precedent. And so Senator Cornyn, quote, tweeted that, responded to the former president, saying, now do Plessy versus Ferguson slash Brown versus Board of Education. That tweet got picked up far and wide by a lot of people, including blue checkmark wielding, prominent, well-known individuals, some of whom absolutely know better. And what they decided to try to do was pretend that what Cornyn was saying here was that the Supreme Court should go back and relitigate or reconsider Brown versus Board of Education, which ended the unconstitutional moral abomination of racial segregation in the 1950s. I mean, you had journalists, politicians, entertainers, even legal experts, quote-unquote, who jumped all over this, saying that this was a shocking, racist thing that Cornyn was suggesting. And to do so in response to our first black president, even more outrageous. This is the way the argument went. That Cornyn, I guess what, feeling his oats that the court had overturned Roe versus Wade, and the big narrative on the left has been, well, abortion's one thing, they're coming for everything else now. On The View today, 
We heard Whoopi Goldberg lecturing Clarence Thomas that his interracial marriage might get dissolved next. We addressed some of this on the show last week. In fact, I've talked about this before. I don't believe any of this fear-mongering is accurate or rooted in reality, and I explained pretty specifically and at length why. In fact, I have a new post today put out this morning at townhall.com where I really walk through those arguments in detail, trying to do it calmly. I understand that these are emotional issues for all of us. Gay rights, emotional issue for me. If you know anything about me, you know why. Abortion, emotional issue for me and everyone else. I view it as a human rights issue. I still try to be reasonable and explain things rather than just post a bunch of memes expressing my intense feelings, whether they are justified and whether the argument has any weight or holds any water at all. I think those things should matter, which is why I try to go about my job using my platform the way that I do here. So, again, the unhinged response to Senator Cornyn was, he's excited that Roe is gone, and now he's tipping his hand. See, he's showing this is what the Republicans and the conservatives want. They want segregation back. They want the Supreme Court to go back and reconsider some of these other cases now. And so, like wildfire, like a misinformation brush fire, this tweet was grossly distorted and amplified all over the place. And the obvious, ladies and gentlemen, let me just emphasize this, the obvious meaning of what Senator Cornyn was saying was that when Barack Obama complains that the Supreme Court has reversed nearly 50 years of precedent on Roe, Cornyn is saying Plessy versus Ferguson, an atrocious decision, in the late 1800s, that upheld segregation as separate but equal and constitutional, that stood, that was binding, settled precedent for more than 50 years. A wrongly decided, terrible ruling by the court. A decision, in fact, that I would say is one of the most infamous, notorious bad decisions in the history of of the United States Supreme Court, Plessy, separate but equal. It survived more than 50 years. And then Brown versus Board corrected it and did away with it. The precedent was overturned many years later because the original decision was that bad. Now, you might not agree that Plessy was as bad or belongs remotely in the same category as Roe versus Wade. That's a debate we can have. I would say both were terrible decisions. You can agree or disagree. The point Cornyn and others are making here is just because a decision stands for a long time doesn't mean that that settled law was rightly decided at first. And he is illustrating that, I think, through one of the most obvious examples that hopefully we can all agree on. Segregation was wrong at the beginning, and even though it took a long time, the court was right to reverse itself. That's Cornyn's point. And yet people decided to distort it beyond recognition to pretend that what he was actually doing was urging the court to reimpose segregation. I mean, 
I can understand a lot of people who don't know much about the law seeing tweets or Instagram posts from people that they trust or with a blue check mark, and they're already spun up, they're already concerned, they're already worried about what's happening in the country, and they just decide to retweet, like, share, amplify, because they're worried, and people in their tribe are sending this stuff around. I don't think that that's a responsible thing to do. I don't think it's a constructive addition to our conversation about anything, but I kind of get it. What I really cannot handle and what really bothers me and I find disgusting are the people who understood Cornyn's point, understood that it was a good point that addresses a significant concern that people like Barack Obama and others have been putting out there. And rather than grappling with and having a reasonable exchange with that idea from Senator Cornyn, they decided deliberately to lie about it and pretend that it's something that it's not. To make Cornyn seem racist and to foment even more unrest, instability, anxiety, and angry recriminations and finger pointing in a totally mendacious way. So I would say to those sharing the distortion, maybe tap the brakes, maybe try to engage your critical thinking just for a moment. I know it's hard in some cases. And for those who intentionally, knowing better, with the requisite knowledge not to be ignorant about this, who decide to go there anyway, for the cheap political point in the moment, shame on you. Much more to get to on this. And we will do so as soon as we come back from this break on The Guy Benson Show. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. We are back. And we are halfway through today's show. Thank you for being here. See you on Special Report tonight with Brett Baer on the panel around 645 Eastern Time, Fox News Channel, certainly in the 6 p.m. hour. All right, so I'm continuing here with a series of fact checks challenging some of the things that you have likely seen, unless you just logged off over the last couple days, which I did to a certain extent. Because you have to decompress to a point. And stewing and marinating in the toxic cauldron of the online discourse about this, especially where everything was so fresh, I think stepping back a little bit is a healthy thing. But also I have a job to do. So we continue now on that front. I dealt with one big meme in the last segment. Here's another one. And you've probably heard about it. Look at all these justices. And we touched on this a little bit on Friday's show as well with Kerry Severino. The argument or the accusation being look at these conservative justices who lied through their teeth to get confirmed about Roe versus Wade and settled law and precedent and stare decisis. And then the first chance they got, they overturned Roe. This was perjury. And it's not just a handful of fringe characters talking about this, it is a widespread talking point that Kavanaugh and Barrett and Gorsuch in particular lied in their confirmation processes, in their hearings, to get themselves onto the court in a lifetime appointment. Therefore, 
that's a crime. Lying under oath is perjury. There should be impeachments, or at the very least, they should pack the court. We were talking about some of the attacks on institutions and norms earlier. Or beyond that, there's no legitimacy left with the court because an illegitimate president nominated illegitimate justices who lied their way onto the bench. That's basically, I'm not really exaggerating. In fact, here is AOC, who is somewhat of a fringe character in her belief. She's also a very significant figure within the Democratic Party and the center-left coalition, and she commands a large audience. And she's not the only one saying things like this, but representative of that mindset was AOC over the weekend on Meet the Press. Right, So it's not like she was putting something out there on her Instagram Live. This was Meet the Press, NBC, AOC, giving voice to what millions of people apparently believe right now, cut four. If we allow Supreme Court nominees to lie under under oath and secure lifetime appointments to the highest court of the land and then issue issue without basis, if you read these opinions, issue without basis rulings that deeply undermine the human and civil rights of, of, the, of the majority of Americans, we must see that through. There must be consequences for such a deeply destabilizing action and hostile takeover of our democratic institutions. There was no hostile takeover. The president was elected. There were three vacancies. They were filled by elected representatives according to the constitutional process. It was not hostile. In fact, this was our democratic process working and our democratic institutions functioning just in a way that the left doesn't like, which is why they say it is anti-democracy, even though the Dobbs decision is literally pro-democracy. I mean, AOC is talking about opinions that are without basis. Go and read, if you haven't already, the Dobbs opinion, the decision from the court, Alito, and the concurring opinions in the dissent. Just read it. They write and think very clearly, whether you agree or not. There was a very strong basis for the court's decision. In fact, it was the original mistake, Roe, in 1973, that was much more arguably baseless and without merit, as even some progressives have been willing to admit through the years, including Ruth Bader Ginsburg. It was a shoddy, weak opinion that invented a constitutional right. But AOC is saying because the justices are on the court and the split ideologically is not what they like over on the left, it's a hostile takeover of democratic institutions, and therefore we must... Blow up those institutions, whether it's through criminal prosecutions or impeachment proceedings or court packing, which is what Elizabeth Warren was saying on another Sunday show. Resurrecting that terrible institution destroying idea. And by the way, in order to do that, they'd also have to blow up the U.S. Senate. Which apparently a lot of people are perfectly fine to do. They say they're for democracy, but in the Dobbs decision, which leaves a very difficult question to the people and their representatives, as opposed to seven men in robes, which was the Roe decision, that is, again, as I was alluding to a moment ago, that is literally 
the definition of democracy and restoring democracy, where state legislators and federal legislators now can actually craft policy free from this magic wand spell from a handful of lawyers decades ago. That's democracy. But they say in the name of democracy, they're against that restoration of democracy. And in the name of institutions, we must destroy those institutions because we didn't get our way. That's the mentality. It's dangerous. It's incoherent. It's a very high decibel tantrum. That's what it amounts to. If you have a problem, you can go through the process of amending the Constitution. You can win more elections and get your people confirmed. That's how it works. And when it works the way they like, it's fine. But if not, look out. And if they have just enough power to tear things apart, they'll do it. And they're making very clear that they would. And they're relatively close, which is what's frightening about this. Now, I played that clip specifically, and I've sort of diverted off to address a few other points because she said a lot there in those 37 seconds, speaking not just on her own behalf, but making points on national television that many other people are making as well. So I think they are worth responding to without necessarily punching up or punching down at AOC specifically. Take her name out of it. I'm dealing with her arguments. She also began, and this was my first point, my central point that I want to build here, with this accusation, the allegation that these justices lied under oath as nominees in order to secure their lifetime appointments to the highest court in the land. And she's saying there must be consequences for those lies. So the question then becomes, did they lie? Did these justices actually lie? The answer clearly is no. The premise of this is false. And you've probably seen, if you're online looking at social media or even watching some of the coverage on TV or reading about it in the newspaper, quotes from Kavanaugh, Barrett, Gorsuch during their confirmation hearings about Roe versus Wade. They were all grilled on this subject. And they all adopted a formulation that was pioneered by Ruth Bader Ginsburg during her process under President Clinton, where she would be asked about cases, asked about precedent, and this has now been the playbook for nominees on both sides, by the way, for years, ever since. You get asked about something controversial, you basically describe what the current precedent is, you affirm that it's precedent, you might say a few more things, a little bit more color commentary, but if you're ever offered the opportunity, which they all are, to tip their hand about how they would rule if that same issue came before the court again, you decline to go there. You say that would be inappropriate for me to do that. This hypothetical, if something, I don't want to prejudge a case. That is what started with Ginsburg and every nominee, Republican and Democrat, to the U.S. Supreme Court from presidents of both parties have gone down this path and gone with this playbook. And Ed Whalen at National Review calls it the Ginsburg Rule. Many others have as well. 
quote, when asked about particular past Supreme Court decisions, nominees have typically confined themselves to describing the reasoning of those decisions and characterizing them as precedents. Whalen says, is that a lawyerly way of dodging a more substantive answer? Of course it is. These people are experienced lawyers auditioning for the highest positions in the legal profession. It would be disqualifying if their answers weren't lawyerly. So this is what they do. It's how this particular process goes. That is where people have landed. Whalen also points out that over the course of the Supreme Court's history, an estimated 145 times the court has overruled its previous precedent. 145 times. People are treating Roe like, oh my gosh, they took this sacred precedent and overturned it. Unprecedented, totally outrageous. It's happened 140 times where the court has reversed itself, including in big ones, for example, Brown v. Board, which we just talked about in the last segment, and the distortions and the nasty false attacks against Senator Cornyn making that point. Now, when I asked Carrie Severino about this on Friday, she gave one example that I think was really good. I'm going to reiterate it here. There's one other very recent example as well. When Justice Sonia Sotomayor was then a judge, she had been nominated by Barack Obama for the U.S. Supreme Court. One of the many issues she was asked about during her confirmation process was guns. And recently, the Supreme Court, a few years prior, had affirmed the individual right of Americans, the individual right of Americans to bear arms, to own weapons. That was the Heller case, a huge case on guns. So Sotomayor was asked about it, and Sotomayor went with the Ginsburg rule, right, followed the Ginsburg rubric, and talked about the case, said it was precedent, and she said several times over the course of her confirmation that Heller was settled law and precedent. Is she a liar? Should she be thrown off the court? Let me give you more specifics of Sotomayor's lie, quote-unquote, and another one from another one of her liberal colleagues. We'll get to that right after this on The Guy Benson Show. The Guy Benson Show. More next. We are back on The Guy Benson Show, and we were scrutinizing whether or not Sonia Sotomayor perjured herself or lied during her confirmation process. In fact, let me read to you a headline from Reuters at the time. This was July 2009. Sotomayor accepts gun rights decision. And she's talking about Heller in this case. And there was an op-ed at the Washington Times that came out the next year in 2010, shortly after the Supreme Court considered McDonald, which was the follow-on case to Heller. And it was a 5-4 decision. The liberals were against it. Justice Breyer wrote the dissent. Sotomayor was on board, signed on to the dissent, which would have overturned Heller, which would have invalidated the precedent in Heller, which was just enshrining and affirming the clear meaning of the Second Amendment, which Sotomayor had said was binding law and precedent, settled law. She called it in 2009. One year later, 2010, the next session, she's on the court and she votes along with a dissent that would have overturned the Heller decision. 
and basically gutted and nullified the Second Amendment as we know it. Did she lie? Did Sonia Sotomayor, as a nominee to the Supreme Court, did she lie to then get the lifetime appointment? Because she said Heller was precedent and binding and settled. Then she gets on the court and votes exactly the opposite way the first chance she gets in a way that would have uprooted an actual written down in the text of the Constitution in that Second Amendment fundamental natural right of Americans. Do you remember the mass hysteria, the fury that was unleashed by the left against Justice Sotomayor for lying under oath and lying during her confirmation hearings? Were there calls on the left, or even on the right, really, for perjury charges or the impeachment of Justice Sotomayor? Or was it understood that she played the game that Ruth Bader Ginsburg started, that nominees of all stripes had been using ever since in their Supreme Court hearings? Where you say the things, because you're not on the court yet, you don't have the authority to say anything else, You don't have the authority to make any other changes. You also say it's inappropriate to say how you might rule on related cases moving forward. That's what Sotomayor did. Same thing as Kavanaugh, Barrett, Gorsuch, and you see those quotes plastered everywhere. Look at what they said. Exactly the same phenomenon with Sotomayor and guns. And her about face was real fast. Oh, settled law. Yes, we respect that precedent in Heller. Yes. Headlines. Sotomayor accepts gun precedent. And then she was a vote to overturn it immediately once she was on the high court. Oh, weirdly, we didn't get a conflagration of delegitimization demanding sanctions against Sotomayor. Isn't that interesting? It's almost like when the game is played, by their side, it's fine. But the other side, it's a perjurious lie which justifies all sorts of blowing up of institutions or whatever. One more quick example. The Obergefell decision, which we discussed on Friday, I wrote about today in these contexts at townhall.com. Obergefell established the right to same-sex marriage in the United States. That was in 2015. When then-nominee Elena Kagan was before the U.S. Senate, trying to get on the Supreme Court, She gave a sworn questionnaire to Senator John Cornyn, who we mentioned earlier this hour, and he asked her about same-sex marriage, and she said, quote, there is no federal constitutional right to same-sex marriage. Now, was she lying, or was she saying, right now, it doesn't exist? Because once she got onto the court, she was in the majority establishing the right that she said in her confirmation process didn't exist on same-sex marriage. Was that dishonest? Is that impeachable? Was that a form of lying under oath? It was celebrated wildly because people got the outcome that they wanted. And I get that. People are human beings. You are happy when something happens that you like. You are unhappy when something happens that you don't like. But if your whole or a big part of your argument now is these people lied to get to their position and therefore they are illegitimate, then you have to grapple with the exact same thing done by the people in your tribe. And we're not getting that. 
because we're not having, quite frankly, a very rational conversation about any of this. But if that's the path they want to go down, if that's the allegation that they want to lob, then they'll have to deal with the counterpoint. Or at least we're going to try to force them to do so on this show. Final hour of The Guy Benson Show is coming up. What about the media's role in all of this? About as egregious as anything I can remember, does Howie Kurtz agree? The host of Media Buzz is straight ahead. It's 5 o'clock in the most powerful city in the world, Washington, D.C. It's time for the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Finland's most popular alcoholic beverage has come to America. Visit thelongdrink.com. And now, here's your host, Guy Benson. It's the final hour here on today's Guy Benson Show. The happy hour is sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink, our friends over there as they expand due to popular demand. TheLongDrink.com is their website, and you have to be 21 plus to drink an alcoholic beverage. Just want to put that out there. So 21 plus only as usual. Always drink responsibly as well. TheLongDrink.com. I think it's delicious. And I know many of you have discovered The Long Drink because of this show. You tell me about it. You send me messages. Keep them coming. TheLongDrink.com. Our website here is GuyBensonShow.com. The podcast is free of charge every single day, including bonus Benson on the weekends. If you want to go back to those podcasts, GuyBensonShow.com. You can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram, at GuyBensonShow. I'll be on special report tonight on the panel with Brett Baer and company. We will see you on Fox News Channel coming up in the next hour. But joining us now here on the radio show is Howie Kurtz, host of Media Buzz on Fox News, Sundays at 11 a.m. Eastern Time. He also has got that podcast, Media Buzz Meter. You can follow him on Twitter at Howard Kurtz. And Howie, it's good to have you back on the show. Welcome. Thanks very much. You and I have spoken a number of times through the years about media bias and the way that many in the mainstream press cover various issues. It is a sticking point. It is a bugaboo. It is a burr under the saddle of many conservatives, myself included. And I believe I've made the point to you that I cannot fathom two issues on which many journalists are more biased than guns and abortion. And then we got last week back-to-back Supreme Court decisions on guns and abortion, and I feel like my view has only been confirmed many times over. It has been fortified by the behavior and commentary and words of people who at least purport to be down-the-middle, unbiased journalists. Chuck Todd, anchor of Meet the Press, said that the credibility of the Supreme Court has never been more in question. Over at ABC News, Terry Moran who is the national correspondent, not a commentator, he said in cut one the following. This is the most consequential Supreme Court decision in decades. It changes the status of American women as citizens of the United States and as citizens of their states. That's the big picture, but let's not mince words. Women will die because of this ruling. Women will die because of this ruling. He went on to say that governments can now, quote, seize control of women's bodies. 
Howie, I understand that tensions are high. I understand that people have viewpoints. I also believe that journalists have an obligation to give the facts and not act as full-blown activists. And yet I have seen just a deluge of activism on the air and in print from so-called journalists over the last three or four days. I'm wondering if you are seeing the same thing or if I'm overstating things or imagining things. I've never seen anything like this in my professional lifetime since Friday morning when the role reversal came down. And um, it is true that the court's credibility is under attack. It is true there's a Gallup poll showing 25% approval for SCOTUS. It is true that um, what the court has done uh, is far from settling the Roe issue, I think has reignited more legal battles to come, certainly in the 50 state capitals. But nevertheless, I have the old-fashioned view like you do, that journalists should be fair to both sides. And yet the way it's being framed, the language that's used is this is a horrible thing. This is five unelected judges. It's very interesting because it's always thrown as an insult when the ruling goes against your uh, ideology. They're unelected judges. Well, the seven justices who handed down Roe v. Wade in 1973 were unelected justices as well. Yeah, and they were and all so, men, by the uh, way, because that, that, sometimes that matters, too. You know, unelected men. Oh, Absolutely. Right. Absolutely. And, and, and these are the games I expect. I expect partisans to engage in this sort of stuff and to jockey for position and to make partisan or ideological arguments. That's the role of partisans and activists. But that's what a lot of journalists have taken it upon themselves to do, because I just think they can't help themselves on this issue. They are partisan activists. I wouldn't give you a big argument on that. And I think I've, taught, I've seen women on the air, uh, people I respect, choking back tears, talking about this is a betrayal, this is a right that never should have been taken away, talking about the effect uh, not just on them but on their daughters and their nieces and people they know. Um, and given, you know, on, on CNN and MSNBC, each day they've got a token couple of interviews with somebody from pro-life group. Otherwise, there's an absolute parade of people from Planned Parenthood and other um, abortion rights organizations who are on as guests, and the panels are all uh, loaded against one side and, and all of that. Um, and Including the anchors. The anchors are on one of the sides. That's also part of the problem here. Well, I don't want to say every anchor, but certainly you isolated a couple. And um, it's the framing. You know, the framing is, look, Everybody's entitled to disagree with a Supreme Court decision. The pro-life movement has been disagreeing with Roe for 50 years. That's but right. Through, you know, from AOC saying we have to impeach some of these justices for lying, uh, to others talking about the credibility of the court has blown up, uh, to still others saying we must resist. You know, Matt, uh, Maxine Waters, the hell with them. We're going to defy the Supreme Court. What happened to all the pieties about the rule of law, which comes up so often? In the January 6th hearings, you know, right. Trump broke the law. Trump yep. did this. He should have done that. I, I, I do think some of the testimony lately from Republicans has been very damaging to Donald Trump. I agree. But if you can take that stance, you can't then say we're going to ignore a Supreme Court ruling. You can say we can go out and campaign, try to elect Democrats, get Congress to reverse it. But it's very different. Yep. And I think everything that you're saying is correct. Maybe one way to think about it, Howie, is this. If you had a national correspondent or an anchor 
on one of the major networks on one of the Sunday shows, the same Sunday shows, by the way, that I will just remind everyone, completely ignored the assassination plot against Justice Kavanaugh within days of that happening and being foiled and attempted murder charges being filed. Fox News Sunday was the only Sunday morning show to cover that just a few days later. So same morning shows, same milieu. If you had one of these national correspondents or anchors saying about the Dobbs decision, let's not mince words. Fewer children will die because the court did this. And unborn babies are no longer going to be second-class citizens in the United States of America. And finally, representatives can seize control over this process to protect the bodies of unborn human beings. If that's the way that that had been framed, first of all, never in a million years, but just hypothetically, I'm taking Terry Moran on ABC and I'm just putting his framing and his spin on it, but on the other side of the issue, I think everyone would recognize, wow, that is not the appropriate way to cover this, even if you agree. Even if you're a pro-lifer like I am and you say, wow, I'm, I'm in agreement with this journalist here, that's also opinion journalism. And I think that person would be absolutely pilloried for saying it from the outside, from within the journalistic community, from within the network or the outlet. I wouldn't be surprised if someone maybe even got suspended for editorializing that way. And yet, if you do all of those exact same things – but you are towing the line that I would guess 90-plus percent of journalists agree with on this very divisive issue, you're perfectly fine, perfectly safe, because you're on the correct side. That's how I view this, Howie. And to me, that goes beyond bias. That is institutional, systemic bias, or perhaps worse, something closer to corruption. I know that's a strong word, but... Feel free to, to, to dispute it. I just think what I just laid out is very hard to argue with about what the standards are and what they would be. Oh, I see this on issue after issue. I mean, I also covered the murder attempt against Brett Kavanaugh on my show and, and was just struck. It was a, treated as a one-day story by all these other networks. I agree with you that if somebody came out and said it was all the, the Terry Moran framing but in favor of unborn babies – uh, there would be immediate explosion. That person is so biased because so many of these people uh, travel in certain circles, upper middle class, big city, and they um, they think that that's everybody they know thinks that way. So it seems like the rational opinion. Now, you could also make the case that Supreme Court didn't have to overturn Roe, uh, that the issue before the court was a 15 week Mississippi ban and the court, you know, uh, and you can raise issues about what the justices said at their confirmation hearings and all of that. That's fine. But when you take it as a kind of accepted wisdom fact that um, this is a horrible thing for America, and I'm seeing some people go even further and saying, you know, we're really splitting into two countries. This is true on guns. This is true on abortion. This is true on your view of the Capitol riot. This is true on vaccinations. And that. It's really striking, you know, it really troubles me. Uh, It it is many of the same people who uh, hold themselves out as moral arbiters when these things happen in a way they don't approve. When they do approve, it's just fine. And media critics don't write pieces saying, well, you know, it's okay. Uh, You know, this is terrible because this person wasn't even fair. It it just, they're all on the same team. And Howie, 
Relatedly, there have been a spate, and we've been covering it on this show. I know Fox has been covering it more than our competitors, certainly. There's been a whole slew of threats and attacks, including firebombings, of pro-life centers. There have been maps published where these places are, where they exist, an open letter put out basically saying you need to stop your pro-life work or we're going to come after you, we're going to get you. And it's a terrorist group calling itself Jane's Revenge and other splinter organizations. I mean, this is not hypothetical. It's, it's a bunch of crimes, a spree across the country. And we saw more of them over the weekend, stoked by a lot of this rhetoric. And it's almost as if it isn't happening at all if you read national coverage or watch national coverage most places. It is just an unhelpful inconvenient story the left likes to say and the media likes to say political violence and domestic terrorism is a right-wing issue it's the province of the hard right that's the story they're sticking to it and people who make the pro-choice or pro-abortion side look bad by bombing places and setting fires it's sort of like let's all avert our eyes in a way that would never be the case in coverage if there was currently a string of abortion clinic bombings happening across the country, the number of questions being asked of legislators, the scope of that coverage. I mean, I feel like I'm making the same point over and over again, Howie, and it's annoying and I'm sure it's frustrating to some in the audience, but I just don't know how else we can talk about this. It's just the media making a decision that they are on one side of this issue And anything that gets in the way or might be sort of a problem for that worldview gets either totally blacked out or scant, perfunctory, box-checking coverage very quickly to then move back to the main point. That is what I have seen in my consumption of the media over four days. I'm just being honest. Look, it's unconscionable, and violence is never acceptable. And I was glad when President Biden came out and, you know, made his speech saying, well, was on the ballot and so forth, that he did call for no violence, um, presumably from his own side, as well as the other side. You know, there's also an interesting uh, debate happening on the right, which you're probably tuned into, which is now that the pro-life movement has won, in air quotes, because we're talking about half the country, um, maybe the movement needs to do more to support some of these women and babies you know, once they're born, who otherwise would not have been born. And I just think that's an interesting uh, development. As It is, as and worthy of coverage and worthy of discussion, right? That, I think, is fully legitimate. And coming from conservatives, yeah. But exactly. No, exactly. And that's one thing that I believe ought to be covered and discussed, as opposed to what we are seeing so far, which is just like almost a, this mass-scale grieving and catharsis session of anger and, you know, rending of garments and all of that, that's been sort of the tone, almost like this angry funeral playing out on some of these competitor networks and in the pages of various newspapers. And, Howie, when we come back, I want to talk about another but related issue that I think got very short shrift in the news cycle. We'll get into that with Howie's analysis. Howie Kurtz, my guest, here on The Guy Benson Show. We'll be right back. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. We are back. Happy hour on The Guy Benson Show alongside Howie Kurtz here, who is with me. And Howie, one more topic. There was a pretty significant development last week where the Senate passed this background check 
community safety mental health bill, whatever you want to call it, in response to the Uvalde horror. And it was bipartisan in the Senate. It went over to the House. They passed it, and it is off to the president for signing. That development overlapped with some of the coverage of the Supreme Court decisions and got almost completely buried because people were now freaking out about the next thing. Because we were all freaking out, I think, when 19 children get murdered. It's understandable for people to freak out. I think that is a freak-out event. And then there was a lengthy discussion and debate in Congress, and people put their heads together and came together and got something done. And the news of that getting done just got completely overshadowed and sort of slipped away in the ether. I wonder if the American people, by and large, are even aware that that happened. Yeah, it got about a half day of coverage, you're right, until the Roe explosion. Uh, I actually think it's a very heartening development, even though it's a one-time situation powered by, I think, a lot of strong public emotion about these latest mass shootings and mass shootings generally, Buffalo and Texas, as you point out. Uh, the idea, and I was skeptical of this, that it would fall apart in the end, that 15 Republican senators would break ranks with their party, with the NRA, and negotiate this modest package with Democrats. Uh, I think part of the reason you're not seeing more media coverage is the truth is, Many Democrats and many media liberals are disappointed there wasn't more, but they were never going to get more. They were not going to get an assault rifle ban. They were not going to raise the age to 21, but they found some things, some common ground, which almost never happens on Capitol Hill. And I I don't think it should be uh, swept under the rug. I think it deserves plenty of coverage. It's it's, uh, one of the few times Congress has stepped up to the plate on on the very issue that is as emotional and visceral in its own way as the abortion issue is. Yeah, and you hear people saying, demanding action. We can't let this be another example of doing nothing. And then people of good faith, whether you agree with the bill or not, get together, do something. And because it's off to the next angry, shiny object, it's like, oh, well, the thing that everyone was clamoring for and posting about and and preening about and all of that for days, it actually happened. And almost no one knows that it happened because we were off to the next thing. And that's not completely on the media. I've been very critical of journalists, I think, for good reason in this segment. Part of that is just the cycle and sort of the cadence of of these news cycles and also our collective attention span as a society, which has, uh, I think, many root causes that we don't have nearly enough time to dismantle here and discuss at great length because we are up on a break with Howie Kurtz, host of Media Buzz on Fox News Channel every Sunday morning at 11 a.m. Eastern at Howard Kurtz on Twitter. Howie, always appreciate your time here on the show. Thank you. Thanks so much, Guy. We will step aside and come right back. It's The Guy Benson Show. You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson. Earlier on today's show here on the Guy Benson Show, we chatted with Jessica Tarloff, our friend with whom we disagree on a number of issues, including today talking about the Supreme Court. Here's part of that conversation with Jessica Tarloff. Let's start with the guns case uh, coming out of New York. Uh, Six to three decision there on the Second Amendment, on concealed carry. Uh, I just wonder how you viewed that decision and that case through your eyes as a left-leaning person compared to uh, yours truly and much of the audience? Um, Well, I think actually what's kind of more useful 
or the way that I've been looking at all of this is that we've just entered a 6-3 world that we're going to be in for a very long time. So I did think that the decision went too far. I don't think that essentially we're, we should have no limits on where even concealed carry can take us. I know in liberal states here in New York, Kathy Hochul has already started increasing the number of sensitive areas or what they're called when you can't even have um, a legally permitted gun with you. I was talking to Katie Pavlich, both of our colleagues here at Fox and yours as well at Town Hall about it, and she said that's why it's essentially not worthwhile to even bring your concealed carry gun into Washington, D.C., for instance, because everything is a sensitive uh, spot. But I've just been overwhelmed, I guess, by the realization that these decisions are going to continue to come down, and I don't think that there's an end in sight for 6-3 and at most maybe 5-4 if Robert swings, um, you know, and votes with the liberals, as he has been known to do in a few key cases. Um, and did actually with the Roe decision. Obviously, he was supportive in Dobbs and then said it went too far and wouldn't vote to overturn Roe. Um, but it's been a hugely depressing few days for me. Yeah. And look, I'm, I obviously have very different emotions about it. I hope that you're right that we'll see this 6-3 split for a long time to come. Uh, you, you never know. I hope that's true. Um, I think that part of the reason that elections have such high consequences is because of things like this. And a lot of people worked very hard for mm-hmm. a very long time uh, to achieve these these exact outcomes. Uh, but I, if, look, if I were in your shoes, and this is how many conservatives felt for decades, by the way, when the court looked very different and really put out a long, a long string of decisions, especially on social issues that went uniformly against conservatives for the most part. I, I think that if I had been a conservative back then, at least on some of those decisions, I would have felt a very similar sense of distress that you have right now. I do feel as though perhaps it's a sense that judges have too much power in general in our system, which is why I like the idea mm-hmm. that if it's not a very explicitly stated right in the Constitution, more of that power should flow back to elected people so it's not like huge huge topics boil down to nine people like nine lawyers in robes in washington dc i'm not sure hanging so much of our culture war baggage onto nine people is a terribly healthy thing for the country right i i mean i don't disagree with you at all about that um uh, uh, nine unelected folks who now in an increasingly partisan world um are not what they used to be, and I'm not insulting their intellectuality, intelligence, et cetera, but I think that we're all both grown up enough to admit that it's just become at least to some degree polarized uh, when you would really hope that it wouldn't, and that doesn't mean there can't be, you know, bipartisan friendships a la RBG and Scalia, but it's just a, <clears throat> excuse me, it's a very, very different time. Um, and it's worrying, and I'm curious if this worries you at all, you know, Clarence Thomas obviously wrote his his own opinion on this, but he called out other rights like gay marriage, um, contraception, et cetera, that they should all be reevaluated as well. Do, do you think that that is something that is going to happen? And I know Alito said that it was not their view that it, that those decisions like Griswold and Oberfell were in the same realm as Roe. But what did you make of that? 
Yeah. So it's interesting. Brett Bayer was on the show on Friday. He asked me the exact same question, and I gave the answer on the air, and I actually really fleshed out that answer in a piece mm-hmm. today at townhall.com that published this morning. Oh. Um, so people can go read that. I would encourage you to do that. The short answer is I am not concerned. My full interview with Jessica Tarloff, co-host of The Five and a Fox News contributor, available online at GuyBensonShow.com. Also on our free podcast, the entire show, on demand every day, no charge to you. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcasts.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. When we come back the home stretch, I heard from a number of you over the weekend, you better talk about the Backstreet Boys concert. We'll be very disappointed if you don't. Please. Of course we're going to talk about the Backstreet Boys concert, plus a very special surprise for producer Christine. Wait to hear this straight ahead. For the full interview and more, go to GuyBensonShow.com. Sean McDonough of ESPN on the call as the Colorado Avalanche won the Stanley Cup in Tampa last night. Hell of a run for the Lightning over several seasons, but the Avalanche prevail in six games, so congratulations to them and their fans. I'm a hockey guy. It's the home stretch here on the Guy Benson Show. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. Podcast is always free. See you in the next hour on Fox News Channel with Brett Bayer on Special Report. Just a quick programming note on that. Well, if you're listening on the broadcast, you heard our bump-in song was one of the newer songs by the Backstreet Boys. I believe it's called Don't Go Breaking My Heart. came out circa 2018, and they were going to go on tour to promote that album, and it kept getting pushed back because of COVID. So now they're finally out there doing it, the DNA Tour. And as we discussed in a previous home stretch, someone who listens to this show and is a Fox fan is one of the central promotions people for the tour. So he reached out to me and he said, hey, if you have any interest, you know, we'd love to get you in. Maybe get you some VIP tickets, maybe a chance to meet at least some members of the band. And I thought to myself, well... I don't know if there's a more iconic boy band in history. There's a few that I think you could make an argument, but the Backstreet Boys is like a moment in time and a real force in American pop culture to the point that I would guess one to 200 million Americans right now could probably sing at least some lyrics of at least one of their songs. That's my guess based on nothing I feel pretty confident in it, though. Like, I want it that way. Everyone's heard that song, right? So needless to say, I said yes, and we made a bit of it here on the show because I was going to ask Christine, should I go to a concert? I'd have to drive four hours each way, and I didn't tell her what band it was. And then we revealed on the air, this was last week, you can listen to Bonus Benson, we revealed on the air, it might have been two weeks ago, actually, that it was the Backstreet Boys, and Christine lost her mind. Because Christine is of a certain age that the Backstreet Boys were just demigods. And she is a fan. I'd already accepted by that point, but she said, you have to go. I'll be furious if you don't go. So I went, 
Adam and I drove down on Saturday. I was in New York for TV on Friday following the Florida travel debacle on Thursday that never happened. It just worked out. I was in New York for some big breaking news that we ended up talking about again uh, throughout the show on Friday here and then again today. Took the train back on Saturday morning and did a quick turnaround, and then we drove down to North Carolina, the Raleigh area, to one of these amphitheaters. There were, what we were told, about 13,000 people at this concert. And we rolled up, we parked, we went to the will call window per our instructions, and there was one of the windows that said banned will call. So we went to that one. There was no one in line there. Everyone else in the other lines were looking over at us like, who are they? Who do they know? So we got tickets. We got these wristbands. And the seats were amazing. I posted on my Twitter, at Guy P. Benson, a few clips over the weekend. I had it up on my Instagram story as well. I'll post another series of photographs and videos as well on my permanent Instagram page, Guy P. Benson. Same handle for Twitter and Instagram. We were right up front, in the middle. There was one little mini section right in front of us where people could stand basically right up against the stage. Maybe 100 or 200 people. I would say almost all of them were women. In fact, I would estimate that if there were 13,000 people at the venue for the Backstreet Boys concert, 10,000 of them were women, (laughs) something like that. It was lopsided. There were a lot of boyfriends and husbands who kindly came along, some gays, obviously, and then lots of women. And it was basically early 20s to mid to late 40s. That's just my overall sense of the crowd, the breakdown of the crowd. So there was an opening act that we didn't see. We got a couple beers. We got settled. The sun set, because this is a partially outdoor venue, And then the show begins. They turn off the lights. Everyone goes crazy. And the screaming, the screaming of 10,000 women, I think my ears are still ringing. And, again, I'm not, like, throwing any shade. People were just loving their life. It was just a lot to have reverberating in your ears. Basically, not nonstop, but it felt like nonstop for two-plus hours. So they came out, and they did the show, and it was a very boy band-type show. I'd never been to one in my life prior. In fact, I was joking on the air previously about this. I spent my, like, tweens and early teens kind of pretending not to like the Backstreet Boys and their music, even though, let's face it, it's super catchy. And the music is still catchy. They're still out there dancing and doing everything. They're now in their mid 40s and beyond. I think one of them's in his 50s. I think Kevin is 50 or 51. And it was exactly what I expected it would be. Entertaining, choreographed. They back-loaded the end of the show with some of the biggest hits, the big finale, and then the encore, and then all the streamers and confetti came down. It was fun. It was just a fun thing. And then we had our special wristbands, and we were told where to go after the show. In fact, one of the Backstreet Boys' wives, Leanne Luttrell, who's married to Brian, if you know the Backstreet Boys, you definitely know Brian, she spotted me in the crowd and, like, waved me over and gave me a hug 
mid-song during the concert and said, you know where to meet us afterwards, right? I said, yeah. She said, I thought that was you. And I was like, what? <laughs> what? So we went over there and we flashed our wristbands and they said, yeah, come on in. There's this little backstage area where we waited and there were not many, like maybe a dozen people back there waiting on some of the performers to shower and change and come and say hello. And I guess the way that it works is if you have guests at the show, then you come back afterwards. If not, you stay in the dressing room or you go to your bus. They all have these, like, tricked-out buses, all five of them. So the first one to come out was Howie, and he had some people there, and I got a quick photo with Howie and said hello. And then Brian, who was our connection through this other guy, this promotions guy, Bobby, who was so generous. They were also generous. Brian came out. He was there with his wife and her best friend, and we hung out and chatted with them for, like, half an hour. It was amazing. And they do watch some Fox. He said that he enjoys me on Gutfeld, which was, again, this sort of like this out-of-body experience. If you had told 14-year-old guy that he would be at a Backstreet Boys concert later in his life and would be invited backstage by, effectively, a Backstreet Boy who would know who I was because of my work in broadcasting, I think I might have just fainted as a high school freshman at the thought of that. So we had just a great conversation about life, about music. He was singing some stuff. I was, like, singing along with him because I'd had maybe two beers, uh, maybe maybe three. It was just so fun. And Adam was great. His wife, Leanne, is totally charming and delightful. They've been married for, like, two decades. They've got a, a son who I think is 19 or 20. He's a musician now. We just had a great time. So the Latrells, I, I just can't say enough about them. They were really down to earth. I mean, the guy's been nothing but famous essentially his entire adult life. And he was still just, like, chill and nice and normal. We had a great time. And it was almost time to go. And we were, you know, taking a few photos and all of that. I'm going to post some of that stuff, as I mentioned, on my Instagram, at Guy P. Benson, probably tomorrow, maybe earlier. Anyway, I just, the vibe was good. I decided to go for it. I said, Brian, can I ask one favor from you? He said, sure. I said, I happen to know someone who's a huge fan. She is the executive producer of my show. Would you mind doing a quick little hello video from you? You were her favorite Backstreet Boy. You are her favorite Backstreet Boy. He's like, absolutely. What's her name? I said, Christine. He said, great. And then right before we hit record, I said, actually, don't call her Christine. There's another name to call her. And so he did. Cut 36. Oh, hey. Cookie, what's going on? It's Brian from the Backstreet Boys. We're hanging out backstage in uh, Raleigh, and I just wanted to say I heard you're a huge fan. I just want to tell you thank you so much from the bottom of my heart. We're hanging out backstage with some pretty cool people. And I just want to say how about you come to Jones Beach and we try to get you tickets. Can't promise anything. Fingers crossed. We're going to work our hardest, but we're going to get know you some a guy. tickets. Yeah, I know, I know <laughs> a couple knows a guy. guys. I know a couple of guys. Okay? <laughs> Listen, God bless. Talk to you soon. Cookie. I want some cookies right now. Wow. So we sent that off to Christine the next day. She was apparently in airplane mode because she didn't respond for like an hour. And then she saw this video on her phone from Brian. You could hear after the show his voice was a little shaky. But he was so kind to do that. Christine, your reaction when you got that message and watched the video? Screamed. 
like screamed on the top of my lungs. My husband thought something happened to me. He was outside of the apartment, could hear the screaming and ran back in because he truly believed something was wrong. I'm still like just hearing it again. I, I don't. I, oh, my God. I How many watched people it. did you send that video to? <gasps> too many. Too many people. And then they're all like, oh, my God. Like, you better be taking me if you go, if you get tickets. Um, I think I probably watched it about 100 times. Even Judgy Joyce was impressed. I mean, it's pretty cool. And that was so nice of him to do it. And sounds like they're going to try to maybe get you and Bobby some tickets when they're up in the New York, New Jersey area. So fingers crossed. Knock on wood for that. But what an evening. I still can't quite believe I'm like pinching myself a little bit that it happened. It's kind of surreal, like a dream sequence, but it was real and it was pretty cool. And I'm just grateful to everyone who helped make it happen. And I'll probably be telling some of those stories for a while, if I had to guess. And Christine, I know you have a lot more to say about this. Maybe we'll get to it tomorrow. This might be a multi-day story here on the show, but I had to tell the audience about how it went, the backstage stuff, and I had to play that video from Brian Luttrell, amazing, of the Backstreet Boys. We've got to go, though. Out of time here. I've got special report coming up in the next hour on Fox News Channel. See you there or set your DVR. Back here on the radio tomorrow, same time, same place, The Guy Benson Show. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Ben Domenech, Fox News contributor and editor of the Transom.com daily newsletter. And I'm inviting you to join a conversation every week. It's the Ben Domenech Podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.